Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. It's Election Day in Georgia. NPR's Giles Snyder reports on the final day of voting in the Senate runoff between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. State election officials say more than 1.8 million Georgia voters have already cast ballots, setting early voting records along the way. And both candidates are pushing for more. On Election Eve, Herschel Walker rallied supporters in Kennesaw, northwest of Atlanta. This is about turnout and... And now that means that we got to get in the game and we can't sit on the sideline anymore. Warnock told supporters in Atlanta they must remain focused. The race is not given to the swift nor to the strong, but to the one who endures till the end. The early vote is expected to lean towards Warnock, but Republicans typically vote in bigger numbers on Election Day. Giles Snyder, NPR News. The state of Arizona has certified its midterm election results. This comes after some Republican officials in an Arizona county had to be ordered by a court to certify local results. Congressional leaders will award the Congressional Gold Medal today to law enforcement officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th last year. Many officers were seriously injured and some died. 21 Republicans who downplayed the violence also voted against awarding the medals. More than 35,000 customers still lack power in central North Carolina. The FBI is helping search for the suspect they fired on two power substations in Moore County. Duke Energy spokesperson Jeff Brooks says repair crews are hard at work. Understand, though, that that it's not as simple as as changing a light bulb, as it were. Some of this equipment uh, does take a significant amount of work, a significant amount of process that goes through putting into place safely. Schools in Moore County, North Carolina, are closed again today. A white former police officer in Fort Worth, Texas, is on trial, accused of murdering a black woman in 2019. From member station KERA, Miranda Suarez reports... Attorneys are examining whether the former officer was justified in shooting through the woman's bedroom window into her house. Both sides agree. Aaron Dean shot and killed a Tatiana Jefferson while responding to a call about Jefferson's doors being open. And Jefferson held a gun. Prosecutor Ashley Deaner told the jury there's no evidence Dean knew Jefferson had a gun. For a Tatiana Jefferson, her home was not her refuge. It was not her sanctuary or her safe place. It was her demise. But Dean's defense team said he could see Jefferson had a gun. Defense attorney Miles Brissett told the jury Jefferson's gun had a green pointing laser trained on Dean, and he shot to protect himself. I'm Miranda Suarez in Fort Worth. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are mixed. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. New England's electric grid operator says the power supply here should stay reliable this winter if the weather remains mild or moderate. But a long period of cold weather could present some issues. The organization issued a similar warning last year, but since then the war in Ukraine has created volatility in energy markets and higher prices for consumers. Matt Cakley is a spokesperson for the grid operator ISO New England. He says the war has shifted global demand for liquefied natural gas, and the grid is monitoring energy supplies to catch any gaps before they happen. But we are, you know, at this point optimistic that uh, we'll have the fuel uh, needed to to get through the winter under uh, mild and, and moderate conditions. Federal weather forecasts predict New England's winter should be warmer than normal.
Boston is creating 11 neighborhood wastewater testing sites across the city. The hope is that it'll give city leaders a better, more focused look at the COVID data in wastewater. That data often predicts when case numbers will spike. Right now, Boston's data is gathered along with 22 other surrounding communities. Dr. Basola Ojukutu is Boston's public health commissioner. So as evidenced by our current increase in viral concentration in local wastewater samples, increases in cases and increases in hospitalizations, I think that it's incredibly important, it's essential that we continue investment in this area. Nearly $4 million in federal funds will be used for the project. The updated wastewater testing may also be used to test for other viruses in the future. The state keeps collecting more in taxes than it expected. The Department of Revenue says it took in more than $2.38 billion last month. That's 10 percent more than was predicted for the month. So far this fiscal year, collections are running nearly 6 percent ahead of expectations. The remains of a soldier from Malden who died during World War II have been identified 80 years after his death. The Pentagon says Army Private First Class Arthur Pierce died from a disease outbreak in a prisoner of war camp in the Philippines in 1942. He was buried there. His remains were identified through DNA analysis this year. The Pentagon says Pierce's remains will eventually be buried in Maine. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. The Celtics beat the Raptors 116-110 to last night in Toronto. The Seas will visit the Phoenix Suns tomorrow. The Bruins fell to the Vegas Golden Knights 4-3 to in a shootout last night at the Garden. Tomorrow, the Bees will visit the Colorado Avalanche. Today at the Men's World Cup, it's the final two games of the opening knockout round stage. Morocco will play Spain this morning, and this afternoon it's Portugal against Switzerland. And your forecast, increasing clouds today with high in the low to mid-50s. Rain moves in overnight. Temperatures will be in the 40s. Rain tomorrow and in the mid-50s, it'll dry out by Thursday. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy there, host of our podcast, The Common, which comes to you every single day, free, wherever you get your podcasts. And so does Morning Edition. You're listening to that right now. We're in the home stretch of our last fundraiser of the year, and we need to remind you that listener support is the number one way we fund our journalism. We came really close to our goal for the last hour. I should say we have hourly goals in order to meet this overall goal of $800,000 by the end of tomorrow, because we hope to end 
end this fundraiser tomorrow. It's our last fundraiser of the year. Thank you so much if you've already given. If not, this is the time that we need you to step up. We have a goal of $18,000 by 8 o'clock this morning. Think about what you get from WBUR. Like yesterday's story by Yasmeen Ammer about the lack of care workers for disabled people. That's important stories. That's, that's important reporting about people who don't always have their voices heard. And we help lift up those voices and make sure you hear them so that we take care of them. So give at WBUMAR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with reporter Deb Becker. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. That's right, Rupa. We came so close in the last hour, and we're all, we're going to make it this hour, I think. But we've got a goal of $18,000 left to raise in the next 51 minutes. So you've had your coffee. You're awake. <laughs> you're, you're ready for the day. Take about a minute and a half right now to make that pledge for the news so we can reach this hour's $18,000 goal. The number again, 1-800-909-9287. The website's WBUR.org. And look, we know you're listening right now because you want comprehensive news and information. And we realize you probably don't get all of it from us. So what we're offering as a thank you gift this morning is a one-year subscription to either the Washington Post or the New York Times. You choose, and we'll send that to you as our thanks for your pledge of $10 a month for the news here on WBUR. That's a one-year subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times when you make your pledge. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go online at WBUR.org. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBUR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. I love hearing from listeners. It really keeps me going. And this is another comment that we got from a listener during this uh, fun drive. She says, I support WBUR because high-quality, rigorously vetted, ethically reported news is the foundation of our democracy. That's what we bring you every single morning. And there were so many words in that sentence that really demand so much attention and work every morning. There's a whole team here that makes sure that you hear the truth every morning and everything that you need to know. And you you are showing that you know that because you're stepping up and giving. Our goal is already down to $7,000. And now we still we have 17. $17,000 to go in the next for uh, 38 minutes. How's that? 38 minutes. So what part of that can you do? Is it $10 a month or $20 a month? Or maybe it's 500 or 1000 We need to meet these hourly goals in order to meet our overall goal of $800,000. When we end this fundraiser tomorrow, we need that amount of money in order to be basically where we were last year at this time. So 
keep WBUR going at the high level you expect it to be at every single morning. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about who you depend on every single morning. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Help us meet our hourly goal so we meet our overall goal and keep coming back to you every single morning with what you need to know. And thank you so much if you've already given. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And the Museum of Science, it's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters. A new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. The 2022 election is finally coming to an end in Georgia. After a record-setting period of early voting, polls are open one more day. This is a runoff election. Voters are deciding between the top two candidates for U.S. Senate in the first round back in November. A victory for Senator Raphael Warnock just two years ago helped to give Democrats control of the Senate. And now Warnock faces a challenge from Herschel Walker, who wrote his football fame to the Republican nomination. WABE's Sam Greenless has been covering this campaign for the last year. He is with us now from Atlanta. Hey, Sam, what a year. Hi, Rachel. Yes, it certainly (laughs) has been. So you've been on the road with both of these candidates. What have the final few days of the campaign been like? This is a race that has been almost as much about the biographies of these two candidates as the policy positions that they support. Uh, Herschel Walker has leaned into his status as one of the University of Georgia's most revered players to deflect really one controversy after the next over the course of this campaign, Mm -hmm. uh, including allegations of domestic abuse and claims that he paid for ex-girlfriend's abortions despite his anti-abortion stance as a candidate. He's denied those claims. Uh, But here's Walker talking football at a Sunday rally on the lot of this massive Chevy dealership. You saw Georgia won that that SEC championship, didn't you? You saw a lot of people get out there and play, and they did it as one. They did it together. That's what we got to do right now. We got to do it together, and that's how we're going to win. Raphael Warnock is senior pastor at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s church in Atlanta. He talks a lot about King, especially with students like during this Monday rally at Georgia Tech. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed before I was born, but his voice captured my imagination. And part of what I was drawn to was the way in which he used his faith, not as a weapon to crush other people, but as a bridge to bring us together. So you've got these two unique candidates that are each representative of these two really different and central institutions here in Georgia. Yeah. So almost $80 million has been spent on TV ads in this race in just the last month, which is crazy. (laughs) Is that investment likely to get people to the polls? Well, it is very hard to turn on the TV right now without seeing basically back-to-back-to-back campaign ads for an entire commercial break. The reality is that this is a short runoff window, just four weeks like you mentioned, and so you have got to educate voters really fast that they have to vote one more time. I will be watching the turnout strength for voters under 30 and Mm -hmm. black voters. 
Warnock's also been making appeals to voters who went for Republican Governor Brian Kemp in November but did not vote for Walker. Whether these groups turn out for Warnock will be really key. Walker needs to amp up turnout among the state's most conservative voters. The question is whether Republican turnout on Election Day can be robust enough to overcome Democrats' advantage in these early votes. So, Sam, Democrats are going to control the U.S. Senate no matter what happens tonight in this runoff. How is that changing the dynamic, if at all? Well, both campaigns are arguing that this one seat is really a big deal, even if it doesn't decide the balance of power. I have talked to a lot of voters at these stops, and I think part of why this race is still energizing people is the fact that who Georgia sends to the Senate is really a statement of the state's identity and its political trajectory. That is really pressing right now, given Georgia is becoming more purple and the country is wading through such a fraught political moment. WABE Sam Gringless in Atlanta. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, Rachel. Whoever opened fire on the power grid in North Carolina last weekend drove some people out of their homes. Nick Delacanal of our member station WFAE met some of them. A conference room at the Southern Pines Police Department has become a makeshift shelter here. Gail Clark says it's better than her house. You can't cook. You can't turn on your TV. You can't turn on a light. I don't want to take a shower because it's freezing cold in my house. Families at the shelter huddle around wall outlets, charging electronics as they warm themselves. Clark is the self-appointed caretaker. I brought uh, some crackers and jelly and coffee cake, and I have cocoa. She said she considers herself lucky compared to others in the county. We had people here last night who were charging some kind of battery packs for their sister who's on some kind of heart-lung machine at home and isn't going to survive without power. Traffic lights remain dark across the county. Most gas stations are shut down. The local hospital is running on generators. At a news conference, Governor Roy Cooper said federal and state investigators are determined to uncover who carried out the attack. Regardless of motive, violence and sabotage will not be tolerated. A spokesman for the local utility company said most residents will have to wait until Wednesday or Thursday for power to be restored. For some, that could mean dangerously low temperatures ahead. Sedarius Quick doesn't want to spend another freezing night at home with his one-year-old son. Last night, it, it kind of broke me because he got below temperature, below freezing, and I can't have my son out in the cold. Many people left the county to stay with family, friends, or at hotels but he and his son hitched a ride to a different shelter. He's trying to buy a generator, if he can find one. I'm hoping that works out. That's what I'm hoping on. If all else fails, says Quick, they're back to the shelter. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanel in Southern Pines, North Carolina. The attacks on the power substations in North Carolina remind us how vulnerable the nation's critical infrastructure is. Our co-host, A. Martinez, talked with John Wellinghoff about what needs to be done to protect it. He's the former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. One of his roles is to regulate the interstate transmission of electricity. So, John, when we think of the United States and its power grid, I mean, what types of attacks is the power grid most vulnerable to? Well, a lot of people immediately think of cybersecurity, but I think of physical security, and that is one of the ones that... uh, has been most prevalent is is gunfire is actually shooting into infrastructure into primarily large high power substations there was an attack that uh, took place in april of 2013 
just south of San Jose at the Metcalf substation where 17 transformers were actually shot out by a number of individuals that have never been caught. And you were at uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, when that happened, right? That's correct. I investigated that. I took a number of my uh, people from the FERC um, out to the site, as well as uh, a number of people from some of the special forces, the U.S. special forces who came out with, with us and actually investigated that, that incident. Somebody uh, came within about 30 or 40 yards of the uh, exterior fence, which was a chain link fence and actually shot through the fence um, over 100 times and uh, hit 17 large high voltage transformers and, uh, and knocked those transformers out. John, it seems like that would be an easy fix. Either make it harder to get close to it or provide some kind of barrier between between those uh, the equipment and anything else. Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's not expensive. It's not complicated. It's not highly technical. What they did with this particular uh, substation in, in, in San Jose, uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, they put a block wall about, around it, a concrete block wall. So that's one um, mitigation measure. Another one is you, you could use something as simple as sandbags, actually, that would, would protect them. But, but, you know, apparently it has not been done on a wide-scale basis, as we've seen with this incident in North Carolina. Why do you think that is, considering how vulnerable they are and considering that now um, they are a target, why not uh, fortify them all over the country? Well, um, you know, there have been regulations put in place since I left FERC and and made this this issue public. And and, uh, FERC has put in physical security standards um, that are supposed to be implemented and supposed to be overseen and enforced. And so, you know, the issue is discussion has to go on with the federal government, with these federal agencies, with Homeland Security, and also with the states as to why they haven't done more. Because, in fact, it is a relatively simple thing to do, and it's something that we should do immediately, given that uh, we are now seeing these incidents happen, um, and they seem to be happening with, with increasing frequency. These transformers are in the hands of private corporations, of monopolies, uh, one of them where this happened in California was Pacific Gas and Electric. In North Carolina, it was Duke Energy, Duke, Duke Carolinas. So it, it is ultimately the job of those private entities to ensure that their infrastructure, that they're um, given a monopoly to provide service to us of a essential service, that those essential services can, in fact, continue to be provided reliably. Why haven't regulators been more on this, on top of this, to just try to defend it and make sure that uh, it doesn't happen? Well, you know, I believe that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission did issue a physical security standard for these types of uh, uh, pieces of grid infrastructure. You know, so the federal government has attempted to do what they can do. But ultimately, it's a matter of of implementing these regulations and ensuring that those regulations are carried out by these private actors, as I mentioned before, these private companies that really are responsible for the infrastructure because they own it, they operate it, they maintain it. There has to be some coordination between what the federal government does, whether it be FERC, whether it be Homeland Security or other agencies that are responsible for ensuring that this infrastructure is safe and secure. And these private owners 
that own this infrastructure and are responsible for actually carrying out what these regulations say. We need to step it up and ensure that these regulations, in fact, are fully implemented and the, as I say, simple actions that are relatively inexpensive uh, are taken uh, seriously and are carried out. John Wellinghoff was the chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission from 2009 to 2013. John, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. And Live Nation. See dispatches Chadwick Stokes and his band, The Pintos, at the House of Blues on December 10th with support from the Righteous Babes. LiveNation.com. Hey there, it's Tamara Keith from NPR. I thrive on deadlines. I don't think I'd get anything done without them. Just ask my editor. If you're the same way, I'm here to help you out with a little nudge to get something important done. I'm going to give you a deadline for donating to this station. You can knock it out in five minutes, I swear. Start a timer. Your deadline is now. Here's how to give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287, please, and thank you. I am Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker. We're in our last stretch of our our last fundraiser of the year. It ends tomorrow. We're trying to raise every hour what we need in order to make an overall goal of $800,000. And our, our our goal this hour was $17,000. We're already down to $16,000. So we have 34 minutes to make that goal. We're asking you to give $10, $20, $30 a month, whatever you can give, whatever's right for you to help us produce the deep journalism that is the lifeblood of our city and our region. Think about what you get every morning when you listen here on WBUR and give at WBUR.org or call one 800 909 1-800-909-9287. You know, Tamara Keith said we're giving you a little nudge. We're giving you a little deadline here. <laughs> Tomorrow's the deadline. The fundraiser ends tomorrow, and we need it to end successfully because, really, this money that you give to WBUR helps pay to keep us editorially independent and really brings you high-quality journalism every single day. That's what we're asking you to make a donation for today because this is where our money comes from. It's really that simple. So if you have haven't had a chance yet. How about now before the fundraiser ends tomorrow? And how about this hour where we've got $16,000 left to raise in the next 33 minutes? So we'll be on track during this hour of fundraising so we can end successfully tomorrow. We know we can't do it all in an hour (laughs) tomorrow. We know that we need time and we need you to take the time to make that pledge. So we're asking you to do it today. We have a terrific thank you gift as well because we know that you get your information from a 
a variety of sources. So we can help you out by giving you a one-year subscription to either the Washington Post or the New York Times, your choice, for your gift of $10 a month to WBUR. So call right now. Make that pledge. Perhaps get a subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times. But really, what you're getting is the satisfaction of knowing that you help pay for something that really enriches your life. And we've asked a lot of listeners about that. Let's listen. Listening to WBUR really gives me a precise understanding of what's going on in a very short amount of time. I get a little smarter every time I listen and I learn all types of different information. It's the sort of programming that helps me understand myself and helps me understand the world around me better. I want to be able to participate in conversations and really contribute to what's going on around me and in the world and, and just to be conscious about what's happening in my life. It's just an opportunity to learn about so many different subjects, learn about different places in the world that I never would otherwise have been exposed to. For all the ways WBUR enriches your life, give monthly at WBUR.org. People really connect to WBUR in very personal ways. This is an, another comment we got within the last few days by someone who, who contributed. She says, my mother listened to WBUR all day for many years. I could only listen on evenings and weekends. Now that I'm retired, I can also listen all day every year, Dub, uh, every day. WBUR has kept me informed and sane during the turbulent, turbulent past years. Thank you. That is what we do for that contributor. And thank you so much for contributing. But we know that we're there for you every single morning. You know that you turn to us for reliable news. That's why you're listening right now. And what you're listening to right now was made possible because of listeners who gave before. So if you've never given money to WBUR, consider making your first contribution today. We're raising $800,000 this uh, fundraiser, and we're raising about the same amount of money that we tried to raise last year to keep our budget budgets even year over year. So make sure everything you're getting from us keeps coming your way and keeps coming to your community. Now is the moment to join the listeners that make WBUR possible. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, His Life Story Became a Love Story, directed by Michael Showalter, in select theaters everywhere Friday. From DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple, DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Bed Bath & Beyond, with storage products too, featuring a curated selection of brands like Dyson, KitchenAid, and Ugg. More at BedBathAndBeyond.com. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is Election Day in Georgia, where voters are deciding a Senate runoff. Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock is facing Republican Herschel Walker. NPR's Giles Snyder says neither received more than 50 percent of the vote needed to win in November. 
State election officials say more than 1.8 million Georgia voters have already cast ballots, setting early voting records along the way, and both candidates spent the eve of the election pushing for more. The early vote is expected to lean towards Warnock, but Republicans typically vote in bigger numbers on Election Day. A win by Warnock would give Senate Democrats a 51-49 advantage beginning in January. Republicans will control the House in the next Congress. Elections officials in Arizona have certified the results of the November midterm elections in that state. Several counties controlled by Republicans delayed certification despite a lack of evidence of any problems with the vote count. Outgoing Governor Doug Ducey is among those who signed off on the results. This is a responsibility I do not take lightly. It's one that recognizes the votes cast by the citizens of our great state. Republican Carrie Lake is expected to file a lawsuit challenging her loss in the governor's race to Democrat Katie Hobbs. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Massachusetts man who spent 35 years in prison on a wrongful murder conviction is suing the town of Milford and its police department. Gary Sifazari was convicted of killing his great-aunt in 1984. He was exonerated by DNA evidence in 2019. The lawsuit claims Milford police investigators pressured a witness to give false statements tying Sifazari to the crime. More than 200 Lowell residents forced out of their homes by a massive water main break and flood last week may soon return home. City Councilor Paul Rathayem said the city yesterday approved the Lowell Housing Authority's request to restore electricity to the large public housing complex that flooded. Its residents are mostly seniors and people with disabilities. Yem says most of the people forced out have been living in a hotel. The city have done tremendous uh, work in helping finding a, a temporary home for these residents. And they are good, taken good care of. Their pets are safe. You know, they get food. They get a nice warm bed to sleep in. The city has set up a fund to help people displaced by the flood. No snow is no problem for many ski areas in western Massachusetts. Despite a lack of natural snow, some resorts are already open for the season with limited hours. Adam Frenier reports they're hoping for some help from Mother Nature to reach full capacity. While Ski Mountain in Pittsfield was open Thanksgiving weekend, the earliest it had been in more than a decade. General Manager Kevin McMillan says a large investment in snowmaking equipment allowed for the early opening. We're fortunate that we have a completely new system, so it's um, very efficient. A lot of it's automated, so we can turn it on and off from a computer station, which means that we can get up and running quickly. McMillan says it's now a waiting game. There's no snow in sight, and the forecast calls for mild rainy weather for parts of this week, certainly not conducive for making snow. A return to cold nights will help, along with any natural snow that might fall. And all ski areas hope to be fully up and running before the lucrative holiday week in December. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. It's 7.35. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a principal prep program. Apply now for January at williamjames.edu. The Bruins suffered their first home loss of the season last night after 14 straight wins. 
They fell to the Vegas Golden Knights 4-3 in a shootout. The Bees will visit the Colorado Avalanche tomorrow. The Celtics topped the Raptors 116-110 last night in Toronto. The Seas head out west to play the Phoenix Suns tomorrow. In your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to the low 50s. Tonight, those temperatures fall just a little to the upper 40s, and fog and rain are likely overnight. The showers continue tomorrow with temperatures returning to the low 50s. We dry up for a mostly sunny day on Thursday in the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 736. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Members of the U.S. Capitol Police and D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department will receive one of the highest civilian honors later this morning, the Congressional Gold Medal. Which recognizes officers who were outnumbered while defending the Capitol during the attack on January 6, 2021. Since that attack, threats against lawmakers who the Capitol Police protect have increased dramatically. Here's U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger. Clearly, the the threat landscape has changed in this country over the past few years, uh, much different today than it was even five years ago. So um, we've got to keep up with the demands that we have in terms of threats and uh, and protection responsibilities. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh sat down with the chief and joins us now. Hey, Deirdre. Good morning, Rachel. So, Manger, we should say, wasn't the chief on January 6th. He was brought in to address problems after that. What did he say about the impact of that day on the department? Well, he said today's gold medal honor means a great deal. He pointed to the list of people who've received it, war heroes, astronauts, civil rights leaders, saying it puts the Capitol Police in high company. He called January 6th a dark day, but he also said he doesn't want people only thinking about that day when it comes to his officers. I've often said that anyone who defines the Capitol Police Department by that one day is making a mistake because these men and women are amazing professionals, uh, courageous, smart, and hardworking, and very dedicated to their country. And so I think that this is a wonderful honor. There were, though, Deirdre, documented communication problems on that day. What did Manger tell you about lessons learned. Right. I mean, he maintained it's like night and day in terms of then and now and how the department is set up and shares information and said they're really ready to respond to any major event. We are much better prepared in terms of officers training and equipment. Uh, The biggest issue being uh, staffing, making sure we have enough people here uh, to handle whatever comes our way. There's still work to do, but the big things, the big failures that occurred on January 6th have largely been fixed. On that issue of staffing, Manger says the department's on track to hire the 280 officers a year he set as a goal. He hasn't heard any chatter about any threats ahead of the two-year anniversary of the attack that's coming up next month, but he did say there is something else that worries him. I'm not losing sleep over whether or not we are on top of this now because I know we are. I do lose some sleep over 
the fact that some of these extremist groups are still active. And um, of course, as, as, as we learn, extremist groups learn as well. I mean, the threats against members of Congress have gone up since January 6th, right? I mean, right. the attack against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband at their home in San Francisco. Right. This is really a major focus for the Capitol Police right now. And the chief stressed how much it just impacts how they staff and how they budget. With the numbers of threats that we get in now, again, compared to five, six, seven years ago, it's, it's almost uh, tenfold more. And so uh, we have put uh, more folks and more resources into the threat investigation responsibility. And the chief eventually would like to hold, uh, open up field offices in all 50 states. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, we appreciate you bringing us this interview. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. An experimental drug is raising hope for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, although it does come with some risks. So NPR's John Hamilton looked at the evidence. The drug, called lecanemab, only slows down Alzheimer's a bit, but it dominated last week's clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease meeting in San Francisco. Dr. Eric Ryman was there. He's the executive director of Banner Alzheimer's Institute in Phoenix. There was a feeling of elation that this was a milestone in the fight against Alzheimer's disease and very important. A study of nearly 1,800 people in the early stages of Alzheimer's found that lecanemab slowed down declines in memory and thinking by 27%. Ryman says that's a modest but meaningful benefit from the drug. It had effects on a range of cognitive and functional measurements that are important to families and family caregivers. But clearly, a treatment by itself that is not going to stop the progression of the disease. Lecanemab contains antibodies designed to remove a substance called amyloid from the brain. That makes it similar to the controversial drug Aduhelm, which received a conditional approval from the Food and Drug Administration last year. The agency acted despite conflicting evidence on whether Aduhelm slows down the disease. Ryman says the results with lecanemab are much clearer. I'll be surprised if it doesn't get full approval. Probably sometime next year. Both aduhelm and lecanemab have risks, including a condition known as aria. Dr. Sharon Cohen, medical director of the Toronto Memory Program in Canada, says when a brain scan shows aria, it's a sign of either swelling or bleeding. This sounds very dramatic to have swelling in the brain or bleeding in the brain, and of course nobody wants that. But Cohen says even though aria is common, it rarely has a big impact on patients' health. What we've learned over time is that a very small proportion of individuals will have symptoms, and when symptoms arise, they are usually transient, mild to moderate, and resolve. In rare cases, though, patients can experience brain damage or even death. Cohen says the risks of aria appear to be higher in people who have very high levels of amyloid in the brain or are taking blood thinners. There will be patients for whom this is not a good therapy. Lecanemab and other drugs that remove amyloid have another side effect that is more mysterious. They seem to cause the brain to shrink. And that concerns Dr. Madhav Tambasetti, a neurologist at the National Institute on Aging, a part of the National Institutes of Health. What is a little worrying to me is that these drugs might be worsening the degenerative process that is associated with disease progression. Alzheimer's itself causes the brain to shrink, a sign that neurons are dying. So Tambasetti, whose views are independent of the NIH, expected Alzheimer's drugs to limit shrinkage rather than accelerate it. 
it's incumbent upon drug developers and researchers to try and prove that these changes are benign and do not represent a significant adverse event. Dr. Risa Sperling directs the Center for Alzheimer's Research and Treatment at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She says serious side effects are common in treating other diseases, like cancer. Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, and I think many patients and their physicians will be willing to take some risk, and our work is to minimize the risk. About 2 million Alzheimer's patients in the U.S. are potential candidates for lecanemab. John Hamilton, NPR News. This afternoon on All Things Considered, former NFL star Deion Sanders became a winning college coach at Jackson State. Why did a big name pick a smaller school? And why is he now stepping away? Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or listen to us on the radio, which you can find just to the right of your steering wheel. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about making a modest contribution to create stories and conversations that make your world bigger. Hi, it's Robin Young. Give $10 or $15 a month an ongoing contribution, which will help sustain WBUR for everyone who listens. Please give now at WBUR.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, where we're in the penultimate day of our last fundraiser of the year. We're trying to make a $800,000 goal by the end of the day tomorrow. And to make that goal, we have hourly goals to keep us on track. And our goal for this hour was $17,000. We are really chipping away at that. We're down to $15,000 with 17 minutes left to go. So thank you so much if you've stepped up to give this morning. Taking the time early on a Tuesday morning really shows your commitment to this station, and we are so grateful. If you haven't already given, think about doing that now. And we know you can't give all $15,000. We know that times are tough for a lot of folks. But if you can, think about helping us out at whatever level is right for you. Think about covering some of those people who are having tough times and maybe can't give like they usually do, but they depend on WBUR every morning, just like you do, for the full, unbiased, complete journalism that you you depend on. 10 or $20 a month would help. 500 or or $1,000 would help a bit more, but we are grateful for anything. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Every little bit helps helps. Think about what you can do for the overall goal. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and here to help me out this morning is reporter Deb Becker. Good morning. You know, that was a terrific story. We just heard about the latest uh, on Alzheimer's, uh, potential Alzheimer's mm-hmm. treatment. Did any, anybody out there besides me do a little cheer there to hear Risa yeah, Sperling, who's Boston's own renowned Alzheimer's researcher? You know, and the, this is just one small example of the kind of information you get from WBUR every day. We're bringing you big stories about 
big scientific breakthroughs. We're bringing you stories about what's going on around the globe, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in China. Uh, How about that shipwreck on Nantucket? (laughs) Right in the latest weather, it's all here for you. It's comprehensive news and information, and this is how we get the money to pay for it so we can stay here and bring this to you. So it's on, we're here, we're on your phone, we're on your radio, we're on your computer. So help us out with your pledge, whatever you can do today. And if you'd like to get a one-year subscription to the Washington Post to the New York Times, we can give you that as a thank you gift for your pledge of $10 a month for the news. So please do it now. The fundraiser ends tomorrow, as Rupa said, and we've got a goal this hour that we're still trying to meet. We've got 13 minutes left to do it, so don't procrastinate anymore. Make that pledge today. Get a subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times as our thanks. And you know, at the beginning of this fun drive, Rupa, right, you had a you had a conversation with our CEO, Margaret Lowe, where you asked her what she thought you should know that you might not know. Mm-hmm. Let's listen. We're not a tiny organization, but we're not a giant organization. We're about 200 people strong, maybe 210 when we're soaking wet. And I'm constantly struck by the level of talent and ambition at WBUR. On top of that, people who work here are absolutely dedicated to the cause. They're here because they believe that producing high-quality journalism and enriching experiences that deepen understanding and deepen connection and community is a purpose worth working for. And so that's what tethers us together here and I think what ties us to Boston and to the region because we all live here. It's our home. And so we're reporting and covering a place that we call home, and we want it to be the best possible place to live. Uh, about a 200 people work here in Boston at WBUR. That's what Margaret said. Maybe 210 when we're soaking wet, as she says. But think about that's that's not a big number for what you hear on air and read online every day, what you get in uh, newsletters, what you get on podcasts. That is, we do a lot of work with the amount of people that we have. And we take care of your money, you know, just the way that we would our own money. We make the most of it. We're trying to raise $800,000 this hour. We're trying to raise $17,000. We have $15,000 yet to go, but there's someone typing, so I think that might be going down. But help us continue this important work. Show that you value this service at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. At MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Teams in the World Cup quarterfinals do not include the United States, but they do include France. And that successful French team is diverse. It includes many people who are immigrants or descendants of immigrants, which is on the mind of a French filmmaker. Rochaya Diallo says the French players are stars in that country, while other people of immigrant backgrounds are less accepted. 
it's the idea of the exception. Like you have to be exceptional to be seen. Like you cannot be just an average person and be considered as being part of the national fabric. You need to be the best hip hop artist, the best actor, the best soccer player. It's very difficult to be seen and to be considered. Diallo spoke with A. Martinez about a former colonial power that is now home to many people from countries it once controlled. That colonial history makes immigration different than it often feels in the United States. One of the first differences is that for a person of color in France, the idea that the person is not truly French is very present. And many people have to justify being French, being born there, being part of the French. But for black people, the idea that they don't belong is kind of different. Like there is, of course, racism and inequalities, but it's not based on the idea that you're not part of the national fabric. And the other thing is that in France, look, the history of slavery, the colonial history took place in territories that were and that still are overseas. So there is this idea that it didn't really happen because many people didn't witness what happened in the U.S., it was, you know, in the country. It was part of the, the making of the country. So there is no way anyone can deny the fact that there was slavery and afterwards segregation. And this is, I guess, uh, where the phrase representation matters uh, kind of enters in here, right? Because if, if people see the, this team on television all the time doing well, I think that will kind of chip through any hesitation someone might have about accepting that France is a multicultural country. Exactly. I think that it's meaningful to people in France seeing actually those players of color playing with also white players on the screens because it normalizes the fact that France is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multicolored uh, country. And it also displays to other countries a face of a country that is kind of more inclusive. And to me, it's very important for France to display itself in a way that makes everyone feel that they belong. You know, and I think a lot of this also is part of this larger question that I don't know if anyone has ever come up with an answer to, but is this, what makes a person blank? So what makes a person French? What makes a person Spanish? What makes a person British? You know, what makes a person American? That's a tough question to answer, or maybe does it even need an answer? It's very difficult to define. And I don't think that there is one way of being French. And to me, uh, what is most important to know who is French, who is Italian, who is British, is it's the self-identification. If someone feels that they are French, to me, they are. It's not up to someone else to say that they are French. It's not a label that someone puts on your skin. It's something that you feel. And if you feel it, you can claim it. Who would you say is expressing the most discomfort with the composition of the French soccer team? Is it elites? Is it just the population at large? Who would you say is expressing the most discomfort with this? I'd say it's the elite. We've heard many intellectuals, philosophers, or you know, leaders of far-right parties saying that the team wasn't really displaying the real face of France. And... I think that some people on the far right uh, side of the political landscape are using the football team to spread that very racist theory of great replacement, the idea that uh, minorities would have come on purpose in Europe to replace the original population, the white population. So they use that team to say that we are not French anymore, meaning that French is white. And it's interesting because to me, the soccer team is just a reflection of the colonial history. Like people didn't come randomly to France. If they were born in France, it's because their parents came and their parents were in countries that had 
a bond with France because France invaded the country of their, their parents or grandparents. You wrote a, an opinion piece in the Washington Post remembering the 1998 French World Cup winning team. You were a college student, you were in your 20s, and even though you weren't a big football fan back then, you wrote that that title made you happy and sad all at the same time. Tell us about that. I was happy. Like, I went to the Champs-Élysées with everyone in France. We just, you know, took the subway or the cars to go and celebrate in the Champs-Élysées in Paris. But at the same time, being raised in Paris, in a very multicultural part of Paris, I was sad to see people discovering us on TV and at the occasion of the winning of a World Cup. To me, it was like, okay, so we did not exist for many people in France until some people who look like us won a World Cup. And it made me sad because I was like, okay, it takes so much to be recognized, to be accepted, to be celebrated as, you know, a French of color. And that's the reason why I was kind of disappointed um, of my fellow citizens, especially the journalists who were just discovering the true face of France. Because if you go to the subway, if you walk in, in a French street, you will see many, many people who look like uh, the, the players of the soccer team. Was there a sense that the only value that black players had to France was that they were able to help France win a title. Mm, black athletes are seen as, you know, being a source of muscle, but not really people who would be into strategy. And to me, it's something that is very narrow. It's a narrow, narrowing way of seeing them and of, uh, you know, celebrating them. What are your hopes for better acceptance of football players of different backgrounds in France? I think that the acceptance now is way better than it was like a decade ago. And I feel like in the younger generations, the generation of Kylian Mbappé, for example, who is one of the, the best players of the team, there is this idea that it's the norm to have a multi-ethnic, a multicultural team. And it's something that is accepted because it's seen as part of their daily life. So I think that the generational change will help that is activist, writer, and filmmaker Rokaya Diallo. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. I'm Lakshmi Singh from NPR. It has been a long year full of major news stories. The Supreme Court has eliminated the constitutional right to an abortion. The January 6th committee has begun to lay out what it has learned about this morning as Ukrainians face down the reality of a Russian Second, invasion. Britain's longest serving monarch has died at the age of 96. But there were also stories of resilience, discovery, and hope. The CDC has now signed off on COVID-19 vaccinations for infants, toddlers, The James Webb Telescope caught those images of ancient history, billions of Only one major theater out of nearly 500 across the country has gone out of business. Humanity has changed the orbit of a planetary body. The NPR network is here for you, and it takes all of us to make this coverage possible. Donate to the station today, and thank you. 
You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, when we're, where we're in the second to last day of our last fundraiser of the year. We have a goal of 17000 to raise for this hour to meet our overall goal of $800,000 by the end of the fundraiser at the end of the day tomorrow. We have already knocked it down by several thousand dollars, and thank you so much if you've already given. We are so grateful. We have about five minutes, okay, maybe less than that, maybe about three minutes, to go to meet our goal for this hour. And It is down to 13,000. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We need to meet these hourly goals in order to make sure that we meet the overall goal and we have a budget about the same as last year. So we just want to keep bringing you what we've been bringing you. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You know, we get it. Mornings are busy, right? You've got a lot to do. You're getting out the door for the day, and and we uh, completely understand. But this is it. This fundraiser ends tomorrow, so we need to raise the money that's required to continue to operate a high-quality news organization, media outlet, journalism institution for you. So we're asking you to just take two minutes right now. We get it. We know there's a lot going on. It's holiday time, and everybody's trying to wrap up the year. But, you know, as you reflect on the past year, think about the organization that matter to you. And please make a tax-deductible donation to WBUR today. Help us end this fundraiser successfully tomorrow. We have a terrific thank you gift because we know that most of you are getting your news and information from a variety of sources. So if you'd like a one-year subscription to the Washington Post or the New York Times, we'll be able to send you that, your choice, for your pledge of $10 a month for the news. Here's the number to call. It's 1-800-909-9287. The website where you can pledge is WBUR.org. And maybe you're thinking about gifts right now, gifts to your family members. Think about this as a gift to your community. This is how you enrich the world for the people who are around you every single day. This makes sure that they keep getting the reliable information, complete, accurate, unbiased journalism that all they have to do every morning is turn on the radio, go to the app, go online. WBUR gives you clarity, civility, calm, and that's what you need. That's what I need in the morning. So I'm pretty sure that's what you need in the morning, even as we tangle with some of the toughest issues of our lifetime, from climate change to income inequality. That's all right here at WBUR. We replace the noise with facts and show that you value that because we can't do it without you. Give at WBUR.com org or call 1-800-909-9287 and thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Total Wine and More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Today is the last day to vote in Georgia in the U.S. Senate runoff election. Voters will decide who will earn a six-year term in the U.S. Senate, Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock or Republican challenger Herschel Walker. From member station WABE, Sam Greenglass has more. This Senate race will be the latest barometer of Georgia's status as a purple state. One factor will be the 200,000 voters who supported Republican Governor Brian Kemp in November, but did not vote for Walker. Will those voters return to the polls for Warnock, stay away, or come back to the GOP? Young voters and black voters, along with other minority groups, will also play a pivotal role. At least 22,000 voters under 30 who did not vote in November cast early ballots. Black voters account for nearly 32% of the early vote. One question is whether promising early vote numbers for Democrats will hold up against potentially heavier GOP turnout on Election Day. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. The Congressional Gold Medal is being awarded today to hundreds of law enforcement officers. NPR's Giles Snyder says it's being presented to those who defended the U.S. Capitol when it was attacked by supporters of former President Donald Trump. The top House and Senate leaders will award Congress's highest honor during a ceremony in the Capitol Rotunda. The medals are to be displayed at the headquarters of both the U.S. Capitol Police and Washington, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police, and also at the Capitol and the Smithsonian Institution. The legislation awarding the medals enjoyed widespread congressional support, but 21 House Republicans voted against it. NPR's Giles Snyder prepared that report. About 35,000 customers don't have power in central North Carolina. The FBI is helping search for the suspects who fired at two electrical substations, throwing people into the dark. From member station WFAE, David Borax reports, experts say it's a sign of the power grid's vulnerability. The attacks happened Saturday night in Moore County, North Carolina. The county sheriff says whoever shot at the substations appeared to know what they were doing. About 45,000 customers initially lost power, making it one of the most serious physical attacks on the power grid in recent U.S. history. Independent grid security researcher Michael Maybe says most substations like this are surrounded by only a chain-link fence. The physical attack, to be honest with you, is the threat that I'm the most concerned about because these transformer stations are such soft targets. Nobody has claimed responsibility for the attack. For NPR News, I'm David Borax in Charlotte. The suspect accused of attacking a gay nightclub last month in Colorado will appear in court today in Colorado Springs. Anderson Aldrich will learn what charges will be filed in the case. The suspect is accused of killing five people with an assault-style rifle and wounding 17 others. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. With COVID infections back on the rise, the city of Boston is ramping up its wastewater testing. WBUR Samantha Kutsia reports. The 11 new testing sites across the city will give a better idea of infection trends locally. Right now, Boston's information is gathered along with 22 other surrounding communities. Dr. Pitsola Ojikutu is Boston's public health commissioner. She calls the nearly $4 million in federal funds being used for this project an essential investment. One of our most important investments is in wastewater surveillance. As COVID testing has decreased significantly across the city, we need to understand transmission and spread within our communities. The updated wastewater testing will also help monitor for new variants. It may also be used to test for other viruses in the future. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. 
Medford educators are issuing a vote of no confidence in the mayor and school committee. The Medford Teachers Association says it does not believe city leaders will be able to reach a new contract deal. The Boston Herald reports contract negotiations between the union and city have been ongoing for over a year. The city of Worcester is using $1 million in federal funds to help families cope with rising utility bills. The money will go to an existing fuel assistance program in the city. That program will help pay heating bills incurred from the start of November to the end of April. The town of Hull is trying to figure out whether to take down its wind turbine. The 164-foot-tall turbine has not worked in more than a year. The town manager tells the Boston Globe that it needs more than $1.5 million in repairs, and the parts are no longer being manufactured. Town leaders say if the turbine comes down, they are committed to finding a new sustainable energy source. It's 808. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour Day, December 10th, neiacademy.org. And LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art BL2 lab space that frees up biotechs to focus on innovative treatments for difficult diseases. LabShares.com. The Celtics beat the Raptors 116-110 to last night in Toronto. The Seas will visit the Phoenix Suns tomorrow. The Bruins' home winning streak ended at 14 last night. They lost to the Vegas Golden Knights 4-3 to in a shootout. The Bees will visit the Colorado Avalanche tomorrow. And in your forecast, increasing clouds today with a high in the low to mid-50s. Rain moves in overnight. Temperatures will be in the 40s. Rain tomorrow and in the mid-50s, it'll dry out by Thursday. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston at 8.09. WBUR supporters include Brit Box for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at BritBox.com gifting. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving a modest contribution that creates journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of stock. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR, and if you've just woken up, we know you have a lot going on to get ready for the day, but we are in the second-to-last day of our last fundraiser of the year, and we need your help. We have hourly goals in order to make our overall goal of $800,000 by the end of the day tomorrow, and our goal for this hour is $18,000 by 9 o'clock. And so with just a few hours of fundraising left today and tomorrow, we need to meet all of our goals. But we did fall short in the last hour, so we're asking you to give right now. We can't do this without your help. Please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here this morning with reporter Deb Becker. Good morning and good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's a little disheartening. You know, we fell a little short in the last hour. But here's the thing. 
Each hour's goal is particularly important right now because, as Rupa said, this fundraiser ends tomorrow. So it's really, really important for us to reach each hour's goal so we can have an overall successful fund drive when we wrap it tomorrow. So help us out. Work with us here. Make your <laughs> pledge right now <laughs> to WBUR and support the news source that you count on, the news source that you trust. We would not be here without you. And, you know, I, I can't help thinking of a quote, Rupa, uh, that and I was I was trying to look it up earlier, but um, I didn't have time. But anyway, I think this is it. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Hmm. And I think that that's something to think about this time of year. I think a lot of people think that way. So how about giving to WBUR right now? This is it. The, we are winding down this fundraiser. You make a life by what you give. So give to us today if you can. Consider making your tax-deductible contribution. And remember, we know that you probably get your news from a lot of sources, perhaps the New York Times or the Washington Post. Well, we'll give you a one-year subscription to either newspaper, your choice, for your $10 a month contribution for the news. So you're going to spend the money on that subscription anyway. Why not give us some of that as well so you can keep your public radio listening strong? Here's the number again. It's 1-800-909-9287. The website's wbur.org. And remember, what you're doing here is strengthening the entire community with your pledge. WBUR welcomes the conversation. There's always room for everyone to have a voice, whether it's a college student or an expert in the field. There's equal value given to everyone's opinion. There's definitely a community of listeners and people who I respect and admire and like to talk to. Very often things will come up about, you know, did you hear about so-and-so on BUR this morning? Did you hear about what happened? Did you hear about this story? Did you hear that interview? So it is a common connecting point. I feel like I am part of a larger community. I've never met these other people, but I feel like I'm connected with them, like we're aligned with a common purpose. We all want a thoughtful, deep, examined way of living. So I really believe in the mission of WBUR and the strength that is created when we all give our own little part. Strengthen your community. Give monthly at WBUR.org. $17,000 to go. You have already knocked down our goal for this hour, down by $1,000. That's huge. Thank you so much. You heard there from listeners who depend on WBUR every morning for dependable news, for a connection. Those are people in your community. They are the people around you. And they are educated and connected and dependent on WBUR. We are part of the fabric of what you live through every single day. And we need to keep this fabric rich. We are your team. We're committed to bringing you stories that reveal important truths, stories that help you think harder, stories that bring you what you need to know about your community and make your world bigger and make Boston a great place to live. So show your support for that, for what we bring you every single day. Put a value on it and think about helping us continue this important work at WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. We can't do this without you, and we really need your help. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. 
and Moonbox Productions, Tony Award-winning play, Torch Song, now through December 23rd. Boston Center for the Arts, Roberts Theatre. Tickets at bostontheaterscene.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We have the story of a new kind of frontline fighter in Ukraine. We know of Ukrainian soldiers who've defended the country and even retaken territory from Russian invaders. Much also depends on Ukrainian utility workers. Russia has launched wave after wave of attacks on the Ukrainian power grid. Strikes yesterday knocked out both electricity and water in some places. Civilian lives are at stake in restoring power when it is knocked out. NPR's Greg Myrie followed repair workers who have tried to keep the lights on. Surrounded by apartment buildings, a workman in a backhoe cuts a deep trench in the snowy ground. His colleagues prepare to lay a replacement power line that will serve several thousand residents. To be clear, this is not a place hit by a Russian missile. Ukraine says those sites are off limits. But this repair work is part of the scramble to keep the lights on amid ongoing Russian airstrikes. Our guys always have a lot of work to do. Yuri Harasko is a manager with DTEC, the country's largest private energy company. We're always working 24-7. We have to be prepared for the winter. Just across the street, Tetiana Tostobrova has brought her grandchildren to a playground where they're waging a spirited snowball fight. She says the electricity workers are critical for Ukraine. They're heroes. They've done a great job, just like the soldiers. Still, daily power cuts are almost universal. Energy producers can no longer generate enough electricity to meet demand and therefore schedule the outages, often in blocks of four hours at a time. The government has set up 4,000 centers at schools and government buildings to provide heat, food, and water at times of extended blackouts. The government calls them points of invincibility. Tolsta Brova says she and her friends have set up their own points of invincibility. When we have electricity, friends come to our house. When they have electricity, we go to their house. Since the Russians invaded in February, the Ukrainians keep figuring out new ways to adapt. When Russian troops were bombarding the Kyiv region at the beginning of the war, city residents camped out in subways for weeks at a time. Now they're factoring power outages into their daily routine. Taras Kobitz is a bus driver who lives in a seventh-floor apartment. I only use the stairs. I don't use elevators because you can get stuck in there. And if I get stuck, I'll be late for work. He adds with a smile, This is my exercise. It's good for my health. In many apartment buildings, residents leave boxes of food and water in the elevator for those who do get trapped when the power goes out. This resilience is serving Ukrainians well. Yet Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko has warned there could be blackouts lasting for days. He's urging city residents to move in with relatives in the countryside where they can burn wood for heat. But so far, he says, they're staying put. I talked to our citizens. They're very angry and ready to stay and ready to fight. Russian troops have been losing ground on the battlefield. But Russia is betting it can break Ukrainian resolve by making life for civilians unbearable this winter. NATO countries have responded by stepping up assistance for Ukraine's power systems. Yuri Harasko, the official from the electricity company, says the need is urgent. 
It is getting hard to find equipment, especially those that deal with high-voltage lines. Like most Ukrainians, his own home receives multiple power cuts that often add up to 12 hours a day. But he adds, we will survive this winter and we will win the war. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa will find out in coming days if he will face an impeachment hearing. An independent panel commissioned by Parliament issued a report last week that said Ramaphosa may have broken anti-corruption laws by allegedly covering up the theft of a large amount of cash that was stuffed into a sofa at his farm. His party, the ruling African National Congress, will block any efforts to impeach Ramaphosa. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. MPs from the ruling African National Congress celebrating the moment Cyril Ramaphosa was formally declared president of South Africa. After nine years of the corruption scandals of his predecessor Jacob Zuma, Ramaphosa pledged to fight graft and return South Africa to the original vision of Nelson Mandela. We are continuing the long walk he began. But last week, it looked like the political career of the man who was once widely seen as Mandela's protege was over. Although he has denied any wrongdoing, an investigation alleged the president broke a number of laws involving the presence and subsequent theft of a disputed amount of money. I wish to take this opportunity to commend my comrade and colleague, Cyril Ramaphosa, for the important contribution he has made in building our organization, the ANC. This was Nelson Mandela speaking about Ramaphosa in 1996. Ramaphosa helped draft South Africa's progressive post-apartheid constitution and was handpicked by Mandela as a possible successor. But he decided to leave politics and became one of South Africa's wealthiest businessmen. When he returned to politics, the fight against corruption was at the heart of his pledge. We are determined to build a society defined by decency and integrity that does not tolerate the plunder of public resources, nor the theft by corporate criminals of the hard-earned savings of ordinary people. The timing for Ramaphosa couldn't be worse. In less than a week, the highly factionalized ANC holds its party leadership vote. And whoever wins that inevitably becomes the country's president, should the ANC win the next general election in 2024. I think that it is really definitely the other camp trying to make sure that by the time they get to the ballot as the ANC, he's tainted or as tainted as the other candidates. Political analyst Asanda Ngoasheng. It's about factionalism in the ANC. It's not about whether South Africa deserves a clean governance or not, which I think South Africa does. On the streets of Soweto, once the center of the anti-apartheid movement, Feelings regarding the ANC are mixed, with many disillusioned. Freddie Mdiglana says he remembers protesting against the apartheid regime as a young man. But with the country in economic freefall, there are few good leaders to choose from. He must not resign, because if he is going to resign, then there will be no more ANC in 2024. Will you vote for the NC again in 2024? Oh, Mama, I'm so very sorry, Mama. Not this time around, Mama. They have failed me, Mama. And many South Africans feel the same. Kate Bartlett for NPR News, Johannesburg. 
Thanksgiving appears to have jump-started a new surge of COVID. The pandemic is still out there, along with the flu and RSV. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been tracking what is often known as the triple-demic. Hey there, Rob. Hey there, Steve. Okay, so I was thinking about you uh, covering this story because there was recently some coughing in my house, kept somebody home from school. Now everybody's negative on the COVID tests, but clearly stuff is out there. How bad is it looking? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's not great. I'm sorry people aren't feeling well in your household, but it's not surprising. We're better now, but go on, go on. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. Well, you know, RSV has been surging for weeks, sending lots of babies and other young children home from school and even into emergency rooms and intensive care units. And now, after getting off to an early start, too, this year's flu season is clearly going full bore. If you look at the CDC's map of the country, most of it is on fire with the flu. Mm. Flu hospitalizations doubled in just one week and are at the highest they've been this time of year in a decade. Here's how CDC Director Rochelle Walensky put it during a briefing yesterday. Levels of flu-like illness, which includes people going to the doctor with a fever and a cough or sore throat, are at either high or very high levels in 47 jurisdictions, and that is up from 36 jurisdictions just last week. Nearly 9 million flu cases, 78,000 flu hospitalizations, and 4,500 flu deaths have already been reported so far this year, including 14 deaths among children. And now COVID looks like it's surging, too. How bad is it? Well, you know, the virus has been out there spreading pretty steadily for a while, infecting tens of thousands and killing hundreds every day. But now, Dr. Walensky says all those Thanksgiving gatherings appear to have started to push the numbers up again. In the past week, we have started to see the unfortunate and expected rise of COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations nationally after the Thanksgiving holiday. Walensky says COVID hospitalizations jumped 15 to 20 percent in just a week, raising fears that deaths could start rising, too. Now, the bit of good news is that RSV may have started peaking, and no one thinks this third pandemic winter will get anywhere near as bad as the last two in terms of COVID. Most people still have enough immunity from vaccinations and infections to keep them from getting really sick. Although we're getting into those cold months when people are indoors a lot more, what could happen? Right. You know, the problem is most people have given up doing all the things that could keep all those holiday travel and gatherings from acting like super spreader events. Here's how Dr. Sandra Freihofer from the American Medical Association put it during yesterday's briefing. Flu's here. It started early. And with COVID and RSV also circulating, it's a perfect storm for a terrible holiday season. And so Walensky and Freihofer are urging people to revive their pandemic habits. You know, we've heard it lots of times by now. Wash your hands a lot, wear a mask, especially around vulnerable family and friends. Open windows as much as you can and stay home if you're sick and get both a flu shot and one of the new COVID boosters. So far, there haven't been a lot of takers for either of those vaccines. Here's Dr. Walensky again. As we approach the holiday season, togetherness, family, community, and connection are truly now more important than ever. To achieve all of those things in good health, it's critical we all take the steps to protect both ourselves and our loved ones. And enjoy the holidays without making ourselves or those around us sick. Open window. There's still things people can do. Rob, thanks. Sure thing, Steve. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. I'm Anthony Brooks. There is an inseparable link between the journalism that you rely on from WBUR and the listener support that makes it possible. Listener support continues to carry WBUR like never before. That's why your monthly gift is so important right now. To give, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're listening to Morning Edition. We're in the home stretch of our year-end fundraiser. It's the second-to-last day. Overall, we're trying to raise $800,000, roughly the same amount we raised last year. And we have hourly goals in order to make that overall goal. We have $15,000 left to raise in the next half hour or so. You guys are chipping away at it, and we are so grateful for the people who have called in. We need to make these hourly goals in order to end where we need to be tomorrow. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about how much you value WBUR, how we can connect local stories to national stories in important ways, like a story by Deb Becker about a Natick town official last week. Tell them about that, Deb. Right. Last week, we uh, the f- a former Natick town meeting member uh, who had pleaded guilty to charges of being involved in the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol last year. Um, she was sentenced in federal court in Washington, D.C. last week, and her sentence was 15 days in jail, uh, three, 30 months, almost three years, 30 months probation, uh, 60 hours of community service, and uh, $500 to pay in restitution. Deb so, is doing that off the top of her head. Uh, <laughs> well, when you write it, you sort of remember it. Um, that was, yeah, that was one story, and, and it's a story that we've been following uh, for a long time. Obviously, since January 6th, we went to the Natick meeting where folks were very concerned about whether she could remain a town official, and there was debate about what the rules were and whether that was enough to make someone leave their post in town government. So there was a lot going on there. We followed it for you. And that's just one story, one piece of local news. We do this every single day, and we hope that you'll be able to make a pledge for that kind of news, for news about your world that we bring you every day. And do it now during this fundraiser. Rupa, as you said, we set a goal every hour. Mm-hmm. Need to reach that goal every hour because this fundraiser is ending tomorrow and we've only got a half an hour left of this hour and we've got what, fifteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. $15,000. Alright, come on. Alright, no more. No more being <laughs> nice. We are now going to ask really, really hard. No, no. <laughs> Please don't procrastinate anymore. Make that pledge now. 1-800-909-92 I'm, I'm kidding. 9287 or go online and pledge at WB I'm Deepa Fernandez, and I am a co-host of Here and Now. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and there were never really any people of colour, any immigrants. Um, People like my family were not journalists. We didn't see them on TV. We didn't hear them on the radio. And when I started college, a professor, he said that I belonged on the campus radio station. As I walked in the door... They looked at me and they said, can you read? And I was a bit confused, but I looked at them and said, uh, yeah. And they said, great, because the newsreader didn't show up. Uh, They thrust some copy in my hands and they said, you'll be on in five minutes. 
And instead of reading that copy in five minutes, I went to the phone and I called my mum and I called my sister and they proceeded to call every Indian in Sydney who then proceeded to call everybody they knew. And in five minutes when that mic went on, I nailed that script and everyone was listening and it spread through the community and it was this amazing thing. And then I realized the power of a microphone I feel like at Here and Now, we tell stories every single day of communities that matter, of people who are part of our society, of people whose voices we need in the conversation, because all voices are necessary to help us all be informed and and make better decisions. That's what you get at WBUR. So don't disappoint Deb Becker. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. And from Caring Transitions, a senior move resource to help families ease the stress of life's transitions, offering relocation, home cleanouts, and the resale of everyday household items. Locations at CaringTransitions.com. And from Charles Schwab, dedicated to serving clients with 24-7 live support. The people at Schwab are committed to helping clients on their investing journey. Learn more at schwab.com. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congressional gold medals will be awarded today to members of law enforcement who helped defend the U.S. Capitol during last year's January 6th attack. It's the highest honor Congress can bestow. Georgia's Senate runoff election is today. Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock faces Republican Herschel Walker. Neither received more than 50 percent of the vote needed in the November midterms. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses are still without power in North Carolina's Moore County. That's where authorities are searching for a suspect or suspects who damaged two power substations southwest of Raleigh with gunfire. Nick De La Canal with member station WFAE has more. Many residents have left to stay with family, friends, or at hotels. Others are staying warm inside county shelters, like Gail Clark. I don't have coffee, but I have coffee cake. She brought food to share and says the shelter is better than her home. You can't cook. You can't turn on your TV. You can't turn on a light. I don't want to take a shower because it's freezing cold in my house. Traffic lights remain dark in the county. Most gas stations are shut down. The local hospital is running on generators. Investigators are still working to uncover who carried out the attack. Residents remain under a curfew. For NPR News, I'm Nick Delacanal in Southern Pines, North Carolina. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The police chief of Wayland will get nearly $400,000 from the town to resign. That amount is part of a settlement with the town. Chief Sean Gibbons will step down after an independent investigation showed he violated many of the department's sexual harassment policies. Gibbons spent four months as police chief before being placed on leave in March. Lowell is considering lowering its speed limit on city-owned roads to 25 miles an hour. City Councilor Dan Rourke says speeding drivers are a safety issue, especially for pedestrians and bicyclists. 
even a five mile per hour difference in an accident between 25 miles per hour and 30 miles per hour is a, I think it's almost a 60% less uh, rate of a uh, fatality or a serious bodily injury. 25 is the default speed limit on local roads in Boston. It's 20 in Cambridge. Residents of Lowell will get a chance to weigh in on the speed limit reduction at tonight's city council meeting. A previously undiscovered shipwreck has been found on Nantucket. Rough seas and erosion recently exposed the wooden hull of the ship on the southern part of the island. Carla Baron Jensen is executive director of the Egan Maritime Institute on Nantucket. She says it's common to find old ropes and anchors, but finding a partly intact ship is unique. This is different. This is, you know, you can see that the hull of the ship and you can really actually see the fact that a wooden boat um, is there. And it's pretty phenomenal to see. The Egan Institute will partner with others to research the ship and figure out how old it is. Jensen believes the ship sailed in the late 19th or early 20th century. It's 835. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston. Holiday catalogs and book recommendations for every reader. PorterSquareBooks.com. The Bruins set an NHL record by winning 14 straight home games to start the season, but that streak ended last night. They lost to the Vegas Golden Knights 4-3 in a shootout. The Bees will hit the road tomorrow to play the Colorado Avalanche. The Celtics got past the Raptors 116-110 last night in Toronto. Jason Tatum led Boston with 31 points. The Seas will visit the Phoenix Suns tomorrow. And in your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today as temperatures rise to the low 50s. Tonight, those temperatures fall just a little to the upper 40s, and fog and rain are likely overnight. The showers continue tomorrow with temperatures returning to the low 50s. We dry up for a mostly sunny day on Thursday in the low 50s. Right now it's 47 degrees in Boston at 836. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. That is sound from the Chinese Communist Party's memorial service that was held this morning for one of its former leaders, Zhang Zemin, who died last week at the age of 96. Zhang helped to oversee the country's economic transformation during what is now seen as a time of relative freedom. NPR's Frank Langfitt covered Zhang when he was China's president in the 90s and watched the memorial service from London. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Explain how the party is remembering this leader. Yeah, well, Xi Jinping came out today as the current leader, of course, and he eulogized Zhang, sort of as this defender of the party in the country. He cited Zhang fighting what he called the risk of succession by Taiwan. And of course, Zhang also oversaw the return. It was a smooth return back then of Hong Kong to Chinese rule back in 1997. And she added this, which is translated into English. He also led China to join the WTO. Thus, forming a new pattern of opening up to the outside world. 
And of course, joining the World Trade Organization was a huge step for the country. It really boosted China's integration with the world economy and also set the stage for sort of the turbocharged economic growth that we've seen since. So as we noted, you covered Zhang. You even met him. You mm -hmm. also covered Xi. How different, Frank, is the China of Zhang Zemin from the one we see today? It's really dramatic, Rachel. You know, this China now that she oversees is vastly wealthier than the China that I first covered and lives have been transformed in many positive ways. But Xi's China also is a lot more repressive. Back then, the 90s, when it was under Zhang, it was a much more relaxed society. And I'll just give you this personal example because mm -hmm. I was reminded of it when Zhang passed away. Back in 97, there was this impromptu press conference at the Great Hall of the People where this memorial is actually being held. And a bunch of American reporters came down and... John was heading to the United States to meet President Clinton. He wanted to make a good impression on Americans. He wanted to get China into the WTO. So we just asked him questions. It was very relaxed, uh, unusual situation. And afterwards, he came up to me. And it was this rare human moment. I could see he was nervous. He was practicing his English for the trip. And he said, you know, once Americans get to know me, they'll understand China more and they'll feel more comfortable. And I want to contrast this with Xi Jinping. I mean, he doesn't chat with foreign reporters his government, frankly, more often threatens them and in some cases, many cases, has, has kicked them out of the country. Why the difference? Why was Zhang's era more, so much more relaxed? I think, Rachel, in Zhang's era, China needed more from the West. They needed trade investment, needed to get into the World Trade Organization. And there was also a sense at the time in the late 90s that China would probably become more tolerant and be able to get along reasonably well with the U.S. and the West, still be authoritarian. Now, when she took over a decade later, the party was facing mass corruption. He cracked down on that. He also really crushed dissent to prevent criticism of the party at a vulnerable time for its leadership. The image of the West really declined in China in the last couple of decades. Now she and China, as we see with the zero COVID policy and these street protests, they also have a lot of challenges they have to deal with. And Pierre's Frank Langfitt. Thanks, Frank. Good to talk, Rachel. A new report finds that truck manufacturers privately lobby to weaken U.S. climate policy while promoting zero emissions vehicles. Laura Clivens from member station KQED reports. Truck makers are opposing policies that reduce diesel emissions and require zero emissions truck sales. These policies affect truck owner and operator Carlos Morales in Richmond, California. Morales says his current truck may be his last because purchasing an electric one will be too expensive. The laws in California are too stringent to keep up with, he says. A new report finds that most truck makers agree. London-based think tank Influence Map uncovered that manufacturers publicly promote zero emissions fleets while privately trying to delay federal and state laws to get there. Kalina Dmitriev wrote the report based on public records. She says they knew the lobbying was taking place. It's the sheer scale and the extent of the lobbying that we found really surprising. It really appears to be a strategic and coordinated effort across multiple U.S. states. Dmitriev says companies wrote private letters and emails to policymakers, pushing back on regulation that would curb emissions and reduce air pollution. The report says an industry group spearheaded efforts along with Volvo, Daimler Truck, Volkswagen and Packer. It did not find opposition from Ford Motor and General Motors. They are viewed as valued stakeholders. Patricio Portillo is with the Natural Resources Defense Council. They're the ones that are building these vehicles, and a lot of trust and weight is given to their word. This shows that they can't be trusted. 
In an email, president of the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association, Jed Mandel, said his group is committed to zero emissions. He wrote that they're investing billions of dollars to get there. Truck manufacturers need to do two things. Reduce emissions of diesel vehicles per federal policy and produce zero emissions trucks quickly, as is required by six states, including California. They've got to meet the challenge. They've got to remain profitable. Bob Ramarino runs Roadstar Trucking in Hayward, California. He wants to bring electric trucks into his small fleet. He gets why truck manufacturers may benefit if regulators loosen diesel requirements. If they can show how this is going to accelerate rolling in the newer technology. States with the most ambitious rules require all new truck sales to be zero emissions by 2045. For NPR News, I'm Laura Clivens in San Francisco. Hurricane Ian left tons of debris on Florida sidewalks. Carrie Sheridan of WUSF reports homeowners are adapting. Kathy and David Thomas live in a suburb in Sarasota. It's the kind of neighborhood you'd normally describe as well manicured. Tidy pastel homes, pristine sidewalks. We have all these beautiful royal palms. Kathy says when Hurricane Ian tore through in late September, they and other trees got a haircut. Other than that, we didn't have any damage to the house, but our friends down in the south certainly did. The Thomases and their neighbors lost palm fronds. Piles about as tall and wide as SUVs lined the streets. A month passed, then another. Thanksgiving came and went. The debris was still there. The Thomases' minds turned to Christmas. And we were just sitting on the porch one night, and I was saying, how do you want to decorate this year? And I, and I said, I know, I'll decorate the pile up front. And we laughed, and I said, let's do it so, just for fun. David cast white lights over the brown fronds. They put up a sign that says, let it snow, and an American flag on top. I tried to make it look like a boat. <laughs> like a boat? <laughs> sailing, sailing the stormy seas. <laughs> a neighbor took a picture. A Tampa weatherman posted it on social media, and soon the Thomas's decorated debris was shared thousands of times. It isn't that you can control the things that come in, but how you deal with it. Yeah, smile. This is so much easier than the other way. <laughs> the Thomases are happy that their decorated debris spread joy, but they were also ecstatic to see it go. Just yesterday afternoon, two men in orange vests loaded it and the neighbor's debris into the back of a massive truck and hauled it away. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota. It's NPR News. WBUR built a multimedia reporting team to provide serious, deep, compelling coverage on one of the most important issues of our time, the environment. Changes to our climate pose serious threats to our communities, our health, and our planet. These threats aren't off in the distance. They are happening today, all around us. To maintain this team and this coverage, WBUR depends on you. Specifically, we are asking for your financial support. I'm Martha Biebinger. A contribution of $10 or $15 a month will have a big impact. Here's how you can help. You can go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Martha Biebinger there, one of our great reporters who makes sure that you know what you need to know every day about Boston and the region. 
And you just heard there a story about a pile of decorated debris, Christmas decorations all over this debris. That's another angle of the climate story. And it's also an example of how we try to pepper in joyful stories. We're very conscious of what we bring you every morning. We want it to be varied and we want it to be on the right tone so you know that you are connected every single morning. We are in the second to last day of our year-end fundraiser. We're trying to raise $800,000 overall. That's roughly the same amount we raised last year. We have $14,000 left to go for this hour. We have these hourly goals in order to get where we need to be by the end of the day tomorrow. We need to raise $14,000 in the next 15 minutes or so, and we need your help to do it. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and I'm here with Deb Becker. Good morning. That's it. We've got, we've got about 15 minutes left here to meet this hour's goal. And here's the thing. These hourly goals are super important because this fundraiser ends tomorrow. So what we need to do, we sort of broke it down, right, hour by hour. If we raise this amount in this hour, we're good. We're on track. If we can do this this hour, then we're on track to have a successful fundraiser tomorrow. And you know, the success of this fundraiser really benefits you, not us. You're insured that you'll get quality journalism all the time if we have the money we need to keep it coming. Oh, we're down to $13,000. $13,000 left to raise this hour to be on track on this fundraiser, which ends tomorrow. So so help us out with your pledge by calling 800-909-9287. Remember, we have a thank you gift because we know that you probably get your news from a variety of sources. So if you'd like a one-year subscription, which is great, right? We all have our online subscriptions to, to various publications. For the New York Times or the Washington Post, you choose. We'll send you that one subscription for your pledge of $10 a month for the news. Yeah, democracy dies in darkness. That's right. Well, that's a Washington Post motto. That's what we believe. But remember, listeners are the largest share of our funding. That's you. You're listening. Or maybe you're reading one of our newsletters like WBUR Today, which just dropped. And if you're like me, you look for it every morning and it's part of your routine. Today they have the latest on what the Mass Gaming Commission is doing in order to get in-person sports betting up and going next month. Maybe you don't read newsletters, but others do. And in the current media environment, it's important to reach people where they are Help us keep our community educated, however they get the news. We need your help to do that. As we look ahead, we know we will depend increasingly on financial support from our listeners. That's why we're asking you to give $10, 20 or $30 a month, whatever you can give. We hope it's a small amount. We know it will create big things. Any little bit helps. Bigger gifts do help more, but we appreciate anything. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. This is it. This hour is winding down here. We need to reach this goal. We've got about 12 minutes left. Help us out. And, you know, I want to I go back to something that Martha said at the start here. You know, she talked about our environmental team. We have a team of reporters mm-hmm. now devoted to environmental issues. Which is rare. Business team, health team, Again, education rare. team, investigative team. Yep. Right? We've got teams of people who really know their stuff and are working for you. Make a pledge to support that today. Make a pledge so we can have a successful year-end fundraiser. And again, we've got, what, $13,000 left to raise this hour. Mm-hmm. So make your pledge now, 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Life of Pi at the ART. Get swept away by the award-winning story of endurance and hope now through January 29th, amrep.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Now, in business news, a Cambridge biopharma company will work with Pfizer to develop pills to treat COVID. Clear Creek Bio will focus on stopping a protein that COVID needs to replicate. Financial terms of the deal have not been released. Plans to build a lab and residential development next to the Riverside Tea Station in Newton are being put on hold. Mark Development tells the Boston Business Journal that rising costs of construction and financing are to blame. It's 8.50. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. In many parts of rural Alaska, the internet is slow and it is expensive. But hundreds of miles of new fiber optic cable are on the way. Federal money is bringing broadband to remote Alaska native communities. NPR's Nina Kravinsky reports from the western Alaska town of Bethel. The city of 6,000 is about 400 miles off the road system. So there aren't a lot of options for shoppers. Cash only. On a recent weekend, an internet outage forced the grocery store to only accept cash for a couple of days. Without a way to use her debit card, Belasa Larson couldn't pay for some of her food. Maybe I'll go on a diet. (laughs) Internet outages are fairly common in this part of rural Alaska, which uses radio waves to get internet to customers. But Bethel Native Corporation President Anna Hoffman says a better way is coming. This is going to be a transformational change. The Native Corporation is taking on a fiber optic cable project that will bring high-speed internet to several remote Alaska communities. Funding comes from a billion dollars the federal government set aside for tribal broadband programs across the country. This is the way of the future, is having good connectivity, and so we we will just be in line to participate. Hoffman says the project will bring internet to Bethel through a company called GCI currently the only internet provider in the area. Right now, GCI's customers in Bethel pay about $300 a month for a much slower service than customers in urban areas. GCI spokesperson Heather Handyside says that's about to change. So 200 times faster and more than $100 cheaper. The cost of plans may slightly change over the years, but it will be exactly what we have in Anchorage. GCI is betting on fiber optic as the future of internet in rural Alaska, even as low-orbit satellite services like Starlink continue to ramp up, GCI sees fiber as more reliable than satellites. Not far from Bethel is Nabuskiak, a village of around 400. It's only accessible by plane this time of year. Leaders expect the fiber optic cable will reach them by 2025. Nabuskiak Tribal Administrator Sharon Williams says it can't come soon enough. We never had that fast internet. Some of us, like we go to Anchorage, we get to see how fast it is. As a community, I don't know. I can't imagine how it will be for us. 
But Williams does know faster internet will make it possible to apply for more grants to improve public health and safety. And her staff will miss fewer online trainings. Here, take one for Calvin so he can Back in Bethel, Native Corporation President Anna Hoffman is teaching a group of kids a game similar to Cat's Cradle. They're knitting a knotted piece of yarn between their fingers to make shapes. A broom or a bird are common ones. Boom! You did it! The Yupik word for this game is IHOC. It's also called a story string. And Hoffman chose it as the name for the project. We have such a rich life. We have so much cultural knowledge and expression. We're going to have the ability to share the beauty of our culture with the rest of the world. The game's been passed down in Yupik families for generations. And a story string is a fitting name for a cable that Hoffman hopes will bring in stories from the world and bring Yupik stories to the world. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Bethel, Alaska. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeet. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Lake Champlain Chocolates, celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. It's Leila Faldil from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You're listening to the last few minutes of Morning Edition. We're about to go to the BBC. And as you're listening, we're reminding you that we are in the second to last day of this year-end fundraiser, and we need your help to make hourly goals that keep us on track to meet our overall goal. We have $13,000 yet to raise in the next few minutes four minutes. Help us chip away at that. Represent for Morning Edition listeners. Show that you value what you get every morning and show that you want to make sure that you and your community have this important service, that it keeps coming to you. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Deb Becker. You know, that uh, those comments that we had from Layla Fadel uh, at the beginning were really, really well said. You know, the 
this is a responsibility. It is our responsibility here at WBUR to really counteract disinformation. And and what you're doing with your pledge during fund drives just like this one is is you're you're fighting attacks, really. Um, attacks on information, on clarity, uh, on unbiased news so you can form an opinion about what's happening in the world. That's what your pledge for public radio does. And, and here's the thing. This fundraiser ends tomorrow. So each hour we set a goal of what we need to raise so we can end it successfully tomorrow. Our goal this hour is still short. We've only got a couple minutes left. We need your help to have a successful fundraising hour right now. It takes really two minutes. I know I know. as a mom, I said that to my kids all the time. Two minutes. Two <laughs> minutes. We'll oh, go. don't go into the mom voice. That scares me. <laughs> go in two minutes. But it is two minutes, and we know that with your help, we can raise the money that we need to to really have a successful fundraiser and be here for you. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call. WBUR.org is the number where you can make your pledge. And, and remember, we have a terrific thank you gift. We will give you a one-year subscription to either the Washington Post or the New York Times, your choice, for your donation of $15 a month for the news. And we are down to $12,000. I know that still sounds like a lot, but as you chip away at it, you are showing that you're listening. And you care about what you get when you listen to WBUR and you want it to remain the definitive local source for environmental news, political news, investigations. We are all of that. And we are that because of you, because listeners gave money. They are our largest share of funding. We really can't say that enough. Listeners are our largest share of funding. And you are showing that you you feel responsible for WBUR. You're stepping up to make sure it keeps happening. But we need more people to step up and help because we are still behind on our goals. So if you can, go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And we have things like what you hear on the radio. We also have the WBUR app, which now you can rewind if you haven't heard. Uh, You can go to WBUR.org or one of our many podcasts or one of our newsletters. Or tonight, there's a, a virtual session with Carrie Young, who I think is coming in next. Uh, She's talking to fellow NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz about the COVID pandemic's disruption on kids' lives and their education. Those are all resources that are available to you free. We're asking you to give a little back of all of that. You know, you get a lot, give us a little bit back or whatever you can give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. That's right. Morning edition's ending. BBC's coming up. Help us reach this hour's goal. Help us have a successful year-end fund drive. Make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR today. And if you'd like that subscription to either the Washington Post or the New York Times, Make a pledge to us for $15 a month. You're pledging for the newspaper that you're going to be spending anyway, but you're also pledging for the news. 800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. 
I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.